Hello and welcome once again to episode 108 of Code Completion. We are a group of iOS developers and educators hoping to share what we love most about development, Apple technology, and completing your code. My name is Dimitri and I'll be your host once again for this episode and I'm joined today by my fellow completionist, Spencer. Hey there. So, uh, daylight savings time happened uh, and I thought, uh, like, uh, I guess a few other Americans may have also thought that we were not doing this anymore. Like, I thought we had this big vote and everything uh, and it would not happen. And I was like, silly app that reminds me about daylight savings. That's not happening this year. And lo and behold, it happened. Uh, And I only know because my like fridge and rice cooker were like off by an hour. And I'm like, hmm, Um, I guess the car too. Uh, But yeah, that that's still a thing. Uh, we're going to change one more time in next spring, uh, and then next November we won't change, uh, and then that will be the permanent time in the U.S. So it, it was off by a year. It seems like they made decisions for way in the year to like, I don't know, uh, lily dally, and then uh, change their minds maybe in between, uh, decide that like the children were in danger after all. Uh, I think that was a big <laughs> part of the debate. Um, so yeah, I'm not, I'm not too yeah. sure like what the, what the final outcome will be, but according to the plan, uh, we are not going to change time in November of next year. So this is like a public service announcement because I was duped by this false information I created for myself. Um, so, uh, what this means for developers is good luck working with daylight savings time stuff because... Uh, I guess if you're on old versions of software, like OSs and stuff, they did, may or may not know that the time is going mm. to stop changing. Um, or or they may be updated, like out of band for, for stuff like this. I, I really don't know uh, how how that all like gets coordinated. Um, but yeah, uh, I think time zones change all the time. So there must be like an out of band way uh, that most OSs get updates. Uh, but I imagine all your like internet tech things, uh, those will be completely closed. Uh, so yeah, be prepared. Uh, work well with time zones. They still exist in other parts of the world, uh, and they still like they will still shift by weird things like fifteen minutes sometimes or uh, a day other times. Like calendars are weird. Use the use the APIs, um, and you'll be much happier for it. Yeah, I think that's one thing that like every developer learns pretty early on is like dealing with time and date just like absolutely sucks. And it's so easy to get it wrong. Um, There's a lot of nuance. And I remember, I can't remember why I had to look it up, but I was looking up um, the basically how um, leap year works. And it's like, it's more complex than just, every fourth year it's like yeah every except hundred the, years except the, the centuries and like there's weird rules yeah it's way weird it, it, i thought it was interesting to learn about but i was like oh i'm glad there's an api that deals with this because i mean it only happens once every like one out of four 100 out of 400 years or something but like there's a lot that goes up in the air with time and it's just not fun and so yeah using things like calendar and and all that are really nice and i'm glad they exist that someone did all the hard work for me and i can just kind of benefit off of it yeah leap seconds got really complicated too um they used to be semi-consistent until like i forget the exact details of this but uh something related to to what we're doing to the planet uh has changed the volume like the mass of the planet itself in the most smallest way necessary to, like, cause the leap second stuff to get out of whack completely. And then we're, like, going in the opposite direction to, like, overcompensate what we were undercompensating. <laughs> it's crazy. a whole mess. Um, that, like, we should have never understood time. That would have made things way, way yeah. easier for our dumb brains. And then noon would have just shifted over time and we'd be none the wiser. Uh, we'd be like, why Why are they having lunch at noon? That's weird. Um, that would have been, like, our... our uh, several hundred years down the line uh yeah. outlook on all this but yeah it's it's complete chaos um if you are an apple developer which i assume if you're listening to the show you might be uh go check out nsstateformatter.com it's oh, like yes. one of the best uh resources that i have like memorized anytime you need to deal with dates um 
not only does it have all the formatting options, which of course no one is ever going to remember. Uh, don't use <laughs> don't use why 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 why. Don't use that one. Use the other one. Um, it's also why 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 why. But there's capitalization involved, and yeah. that's where it gets you. Um, financial calendars. Uh, anyways, uh, you do check out NSA Formatter. They have a great tips section that basically says if you want to be dealing with dates internally for anything, like set a locale of uh, US, I think it's US something, SRT or whatever. Um, I'm, I'm doing a horrible job at like remembering off the tip of my head. So I'm going to look it up. Um, All right. But there is a best practices section. Uh, and you can set the ident- the locale to ENUS POSIX, hmm. POSIX? Um, whatever whatever way you pronounce that word. Uh, I've only read it. I've never said it out loud, I realize yeah. now. <laughs> um, and that one's important because that will basically remove all the time zones and stuff from the equation. And you will uh, end up with a very generic uh, representation... Actually, time zones aren't are included in that still. Uh, but you will not end up in situations where, like, the day the month gets flipped or you have a different number of months than you were expecting and weird stuff like that due to different calendars that the user might have set. So uh, this is over an override for all the locale uh, stuff that the user does. And then you store your dates in a agnostic way. It's kind of like doing the big Indian, little Indian uh, mm-hmm. conversions that you might need to do when saving to a file. Um, which people probably stopped doing ever since every computer basically operates a little Indian. Uh, but the network does big Indian. So uh, it's it's something that you need to think about still, uh, at least uh, to a minor degree. Um, and yeah, dates are dates are one of those headaches. Um, yeah. Yeah. One more thing with nsdateformatter.com. I really like it because... Um, Especially when I'm like, you know, looking at some JSON and the timestamp in the JSON is just really formatted. I don't know what it is. What I would do previously is like pull it into a playground and, and you know, uh, initialize a date formatter and start messing around with the date format string and, you know, keeping having to run it over and over again where in a stateformatter.com just has a text box at the top. You paste in what the date is or, you know, like the timestamp is and then you can mess with the format string. It's a little bit quicker um, to to deal with that. So I, I don't know if you can actually paste in the string. I don't know. Yeah, you can. You have the you formatter, um, and you can you can muck around with it. Um, okay. One last yeah. one last tip that you just reminded me of. Uh, if you find making playgrounds to be a hassle because it's like oh find a place to save a file and all this, uh, you can go to your terminal and just type Swift. Uh, and then you get a fully interactive like editor oh, true. Uh, for just Swift, um, and you can do all sorts of fun stuff in there. Um, you might need an import foundation uh, as like a line, just import foundation. Uh, but then you have access to almost everything, and that's a great way to muck around uh, and try out different things, both with the language and uh, with the APIs. Um, so if you want to do something really quick and you want zero, like you want it to be completely ephemeral uh, and yeah. not saved at all, that's a great way of doing it. There was an app a while ago, like Xcode 7, Xcode 8 days called Play Now. And it would just, it was an app, but all it would do is just make a playground for you. And it was super nice. Um, I don't think it works anymore, though. Um, but I've just been using, like, I just have a playground called Scratchpad. And I just open that and delete whatever. It's the same one over and over. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Select works, all, but... delete. <laughs> yep. Yeah, but it's, it's funny, mean, those using... habits that we end up in. Yeah. So it turns out uh, that Apple may be uh, making their chips in the U.S. uh, for the first time, which would reduce significantly their dependence on uh, China for manufacturing. Um, Although I think they make their chips in Taiwan itself, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But that's that's still like under like weirdness uh, because of China. Uh, So. I, I hope Taiwan can can finally get like the piece that they deserve, but uh, it turns out that this might be a good plan B, uh, especially for starting to move a lot of the manufacturing process away from China um, and onto U.S. soil, where Apple operates. So if, if the U.S. does bad things to Apple, like Apple is doomed anyways. So uh, that's at least uh, a fair place to have all your eggs in one basket um, as as the world's uh, economies change. Um, and this is because uh, Taiwan uh, 
uh, semiconductor T TSMC uh, is uh, building a second plant in Arizona where they will go ahead and be building uh, much smaller chips. I think they said up down to three nanometer, which is uh, where Apple's currently targeting a lot of their manufacturing. Um, that doesn't mean that they have no use for like the four and five nanometer uh, processes, which the current, so like there was already an investment to build one factory um, that can do those kinds of chips. Um, like they're still making those for home pods and stuff like that. They either have like a huge stockpile of them already made, um, or they're still like making them on demand. Um, I guess that's, that's something that we really don't know as outsiders. Uh, but yeah, I think it's, it's exciting to see chip manufacturing come back to the U S I think traditionally it's almost always been in the U S right? Like via Intel, like Intel would always manufacture here, uh, rather than subcontract out. Um, and that's, that's where it all comes from. So I think that's cool. Yeah. Yep. Intel fabs their own ships as far as I know, for the most part. Um, mm -hmm. I think they have asked TSMC to do some stuff, but, um, yeah, it is pretty cool that they're bringing stuff to the U S. Um, they have not for, um, chips specifically, but I think either for assembly or for other, uh, parts of iPhones or, or probably all Apple products. They have moved to India in the past, relatively in relatively um, recently. And I mm -hmm. think they're moving it to either Vietnam. Maybe? Yep, I can't remember. Um, but they are. Try I think this is just kind of more of a, a continued push to move things out of China, which mm -hmm. or China and and uh, Taiwan, which again makes sense given the the global climate. So it is interesting. It mentions something about. Um, I can't remember exactly where it said, um, but it talks about how by the time chip fabs take a long time, like years to, to actually get going. Um, this one in Arizona that's currently there barely is, I think up and I think it will be functional in like 2023 or 2024. Um, mm -hmm. but they said, it said something like, um, by the time that it's actually this new uh, second place is actually functional, Apple may have like technically moved on from three nanometer and be looking at something like two or one. Um, but I think that they can upgrade uh, fabs to new processes. So it, it wouldn't be like a complete waste or anything. And like Dimitri said, there would be older products that, you know, the, the HomePod max or something uh, be on the three nanometer process or whatever it is. So pretty mm -hmm. cool though. Um, I'm sure it won't be a um, cost reduction, but a <laughs> you know still cool. Yeah, um, I, I do wonder how easy it is for them to upgrade those fabs because uh, the whole reason why like these these buildings get built, it's essentially one giant machine that makes chips, um, mm -hmm. and it's not like you can think of it as individual components. Sure, like there's a modular aspect to it, but. Like, that building is the machine for all intents and purposes. Yeah. Um, and it's very, very specialized for these different kinds of processes. Um, it's not... Like, there are some parts that are process agnostic, but then the majority of the parts are very dependent on on that process to, to be successful. Um, and there are very, like, specialized machines that... Like, sure, you might be able to upgrade some of them, but you're basically taking the whole thing offline yeah. for a year to, like replace out significant parts of it it's not like a piecemeal like oh let's just do this one over here um so yeah it they might just be doing this to increase overall capacity for making chips sure. to reduce the general load on the system which has been horrendous ever since the u.s automobile industry really uh, threw a wrench yeah. in everyone's plans uh thanks u.s automobile industry um you've been great to us um, but yeah, like everything was in a steady state up until that happened and there was no extra capacity. Uh, and that has essentially bumped everything off into oblivion for, uh, the foreseeable future. It seems like we're finally starting to make some headway, yeah. uh, improving that. But, um, I think it's, it's really going to come via these new factories coming online and then taking and displacing the orders that would have been way into the future, uh, to get done. So, um, I think that's overall good. Um, it, it's not like we had more demands than we could make. We had exactly the, the, the right proportion. 
Um, so this is it's good that we're finally getting a little bit of extra demand. It should put some leeway into the system. Um, and it's good that things will be made more locally because it'll give people jobs and uh, give move some of that professional knowledge around the world a little bit better. Like it would be probably good for Europe to be doing something similar. Um, yeah. And uh, then one country wouldn't hold all the cards for everything, basically. Um, yeah. which it makes for a more stable world economy in all honesty. Like we complain about how the EU is making silly mandates on Apple, but that's for the EU. Um, and it's good that they're doing that there because then it allows the company to think a little bit outside of their comfort zone into something that, yeah, they could, they can just be, be stubborn and do a bad job for EU citizens. Uh, but they can also maybe think, oh, maybe it's better if we do it this way. And then, that can benefit a little, everyone a little bit better. Yeah. Um, before we move on on the uh, on the topic of um, just Fabs being an entire machine, we'll link a cool video um, from Linus Tech Tips that he goes in and it's like insane how well uh, I mean optimized as far as like positioning and things, but then they've got like pallets of stuff pallets of stuff like being transported on these rails in the, in the ceiling and going to another part so of the cool. map completely autonomously it's like way cool not something you'd ever be able to see normally uh mm -hmm. which is cool that they were able to do a video on so we'll we'll link that almost everything like... is like blurred out to give you an idea of like how <laughs> yeah how uh very proprietary this information is like intel does not want other fab manufacturers seeing no. how they like make their chips um, that's like a big, a big no, no in the industry. Um, and I, I would assume the only way this knowledge usually, uh, hops between companies is when a person like jumps ship and leaves. Uh, so yeah. that's, that's like the only way that this knowledge ends up being shared. Um, so I think it's great that he was able to do this because it gives all of us a glimpse and maybe like a whole bunch of people want to be part of that process going forward and they like want to make chips and they think that's really cool. Now they get a little bit of a better idea of what's involved with that. Um, and yeah, never make chips at home. There's like super dangerous chemicals that will like eat through your skin into your bone and like liquefy everything. It's not, not a good time. Uh, so yeah. like, that's not a habit. Like you want to use specialized machines that humans are very far away from. You don't want to be doing it the yeah. old fashioned way anymore. Although it is possible. Like it's, it's something that we usually think of as like, so alien in terms of like the amount of technology that you need to build the technology that you need to build the technology that you need to build the technology like there's so many steps of removal from this that like if that machine go goes down then we are like at a world level in big trouble the same thing is with like those giant transformers that like power our infrastructures like those if they die all at once we are done for a good few months uh at the very least <laughs> Uh, as a little bit of electricity is like portioned out uh, and fixed that way. We're never going to be back at where we were prior to all those transformers going down uh, at once. So don't get any ideas, anyone. Um, yeah, that's scary. that. Yeah, like that can happen with a solar flare. Like then we'd be done, um, which is just just kind of insane. But like chip manufacturing is something that you can do in a garage just by like buying old uh university equipment uh very cheaply um and I, i'm going to need to find it but there's someone who like as a teenager was really interested in this and therefore they like started making their own chips and they talked about the whole process doing the lithography like it's something that's, that's crazy, really dude. that's oh, that's dude. really approachable if if you just know the right things it's not like you need the equipment for it you can make your own chips circa the 1980s 1990s like, you're not very far behind. Um, and, like, we still use chips like that today, to be super clear. Like, it's not like that is uh, totally old technology. It's everyday technology. Um, and that's possible. It just involves, like, chemicals that have, like, I forget exactly which kind of fluoride uh, acid it is. But you get a drop of this on your skin. It will seep through and, like, dissolve into your skin and attach to any calcium it finds and then liquefy it. So your bones, oh. your finger, it will start to liquefy the bones here and here and here. And it's like that one drop is going to cause so much damage. So it's like, don't do it at home. For real, <laughs> don't do only, it. That's the only uh, uh, like, advice I can give. 
That's like the biggest do not try this at home ever. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's from the safety of YouTube. <laughs> Someone try it, else try it at home, yes. I guess. But then tell them, <laughs> like, you should be doing this at home. That's super dangerous. Um, but yeah, making chips, I think, is really cool. Um, it's cool that it's going to be a little bit better, uh, which means that it'll be possible for people to just buy chips instead of making their own chips. So, um, yeah. yeah, A plus is all around. Mm-hmm. Um, in other news, uh, Affinity is launching a V2 of all their software. Uh, Spencer, you use uh, their software, right? This is actually the company is called Serif uh, yes. and their suite is called Affinity. Yes, I I use Affinity Photo for the most part. Um when I was in high school um, and briefly in college, uh, I used Photoshop. Um, I never really got super far into Illustrator. I also used um, whatever um, Adobe's version of... Oh, InDesign. Uh, I used InDesign briefly. I was on the yearbook. Uh, it was a class. It wasn't a club. Um, so I used a little bit of that, but mostly Photoshop and um, right as I was getting out of high school was when Adobe switched over to their, uh, now infamous subscription model. And they were really like the first pioneers of, of the subscription model, um, at least in my eyes. So, um, uh, after that, uh, you know, I, I switched to affinity photo and it was for what I did, it did everything I needed. So, um, I've been on kind of on the affinity bandwagon, at least for photo for a long time. Um, and recently I got designer and I've hardly used it, but, um, they're kind of upgrading to their V2 of the app and kind of their whole thing is, um, you buy the app once you get it on all of their platforms. I think it's windows, Mac OS and iOS, uh, mm-hmm. I- iPad OS, at least I don't know if they have uh, iPhone apps. No. Um, but it's there's no subscription that's kind of their whole thing which is i find very very refreshing in a world where we're dealing with more and more subscriptions and we're we're you know just like back to paying the same amount that we did for tv that we used to with with cable or satellite because we have all of these streaming services or whatever um so their v2 thing is is uh, i don't know I, I get where they're coming from. They need to make money. There's only so many people that will buy their app, right? And so mm-hmm. tacking on all of the they've got there's a what's new page and it's it's quite large the amount of features that they've kind of packed into this V two. They're giving you a thirty day trial and having it kind of be universal, uh even between like Apple and Windows platforms uh, is pretty cool. Um so yeah, it's um I think forty percent off. Let me see. Right now, yes. So, what they're doing is kind of interesting. So, there's no upgrade pricing. There's the V1 suite, Mm -hmm. uh, which you could have bought individually, uh, and then there's the V2 suite. It seems like the individual pricing per app is not universal. So, you get either a Mac and Windows license or an iPad license, and that's because the pricing is significantly different. Um, It's either regularly sixty nine ninety nine for the (laughs) desktop uh, license or 19.99 19.99 for the iPad license, so it is still significantly oh, cheaper on iPad, um, and then everything has been further reduced um, as f- sort of like a launch promotion kind of thing. So uh, I think desktop is at uh, $41 and uh, iPad is at $12. Um, so gotcha. this is individually for each app. So there's essentially six: uh, Affinity Designer, Photo, and Publisher for either desktop and iPad respectively. Um, and then what they have is that universal license, which gives you everything, uh, which would regularly be $169.99 um, or is currently $99.99. Uh, yeah. And you get absolutely all all of their suite, um, but this is their V2 suite. So there's no upgrade pricing from V1 to V2. You can continue using V1 as long as you need. Uh, these are like yeah. new app records, uh, quote unquote. Um, and these ones give you like access to all the new features, uh, and V1 is not getting updates anymore. So this is very much a mix, a hybrid of the classical, like, hey, you're going to buy an app and then you might upgrade it over time, um, versus like the more modern, like you expect everything to still like, uh, work or you might buy a suite of things. Um, it reminds me of Adobe's like first foray into, 
um, this kind of stuff. They did the creative suite. So all of a sudden, you're buying a bundle of Photoshop, Illustrator, and InDesign. Um, or um, uh, what were the other ones that I'm like forgetting? You had Flash, they had like DreamWorks, 20 apps uh, or Dreamweaver something. I mean, or whatever. Yeah, they had a bunch of apps that they bought ton. over over the course yeah. of many years. Um, like I personally uh, was using Illustrator since like version two days um, on like Mac OS 7 or system OS 7 uh, yeah. is what it was called. So uh, I wasn't doing anything practical back then. I was just mucking around as a kid. Um, but that's like the tool that I got very used to. Um, and I used Illustrator all the way up to like CS5 um, before Sketch started becoming a thing. And then I was like, well, mm-hmm. this is a much better model for me who does not use this for uh its intended super expensive rate that it's going at um so i I moved over to sketch and have been using that since um and i i think my favorite like consumer friendly model is still the sketch model which i affectionately call the sketch model uh it's basically you buy you buy the the app um and you get a year of updates as a part of that um, and then after that year, you're not going to get the updates anymore, um, but they're still going to be made. Uh, and therefore, if you want more, you can, at your discretion, buy another year. Um, so you get everything in between and then another year uh, full of updates. And I think this is like the least scummy of all like systems, because then you get the benefits of like maintenance for long term. Um, and then you also get the the benefits of like not needing to continuously pay and continuously deplete your wallet if what you use this for is not something that's continuously bringing in uh revenue for yourself right if you're just doing it for creative uses then like that might not be something that you can continuously pay for which adobe Mm -hmm. kind of uh sequestered that entire market so um, i'm really happy affinity is filling a very separate gap like sketch has more or less gone completely into the subscription uh model um they're still way more affordable than adobe but um that is their biggest um competitor now that figma got bought by them um so affinity is like filling a different niche and like the buck is being passed down continuously um in terms of like who can who can start like using these sorts of things. So I'm really happy that they're, they're doing what they're doing. They they're building real apps uh, for iPad and not just like toy apps. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think that's, that's great, especially for the art world because like the pencil is the best on the iPad. Uh, and that's like the best drawing digital drawing device there is nowadays. So really cool. Yeah. As as a software developer, I know, you know, I know how much it costs to build a X feature, right? It's insane to me. Like if I, if I will look at, uh, how many hours it takes me to build a feature for my job and multiply it by the amount of, uh, you know, basically my hourly rate, it's a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. So having, I mean, I get the subscription model. I get why Adobe did what they did. It sucks. It's, uh, I think a little vindictive and a little bit too much for most people, unless you're doing it professionally. But like you said, the sketch model and this model, um, they're a good way to keep the software development going because it is an expensive endeavor. And I'm sure they have, you know, a decently large team um, or at the very least they have people that, you know, know what they're doing. This The stuff that they're doing is not easy. So they're definitely not all junior developers. And so, the cost of development, I'm sure, is high, so I definitely will be getting that universal license, um, especially now that you <laughs> told me that if I get just the the photo, I'd have to buy it for both Mac and, mm-hmm. and iOS, and then that's, you know, over $60, where I'll just get everything for 100 while it's cheap, so... Yeah, um, you know, I think it's a, a good way to support them, and I do still use at least Affinity Photo on occasion, Um even if it's like to make new lower thirds for code completion or something like the amount of time that I use it is pretty low, but I feel like I've got a lot of use out of it and it's a good way of supporting them. While uh, I'm sure this will probably, this V2 will last, I'd assume a fair amount of time before they go on to like the same thing with a V3. It's, you know, I don't know. Good deal all around, I guess. Yeah. Um, and 
there is one like alternative to the sketch model, which I'm going to call the working copy model because this is the only app uh, that I know that implements it. Um, if you want to do the sketch model on iOS, you have a very different kind of paradigm to work with. You are essentially still having to ship updates to anyone who has bought your app previously. Sketch would basically say like, hey, you can't update anymore. And then you'd be stuck with the old version. Whereas working copy, like as they add new features, that gets shipped out to everyone. Uh, So what they did is every time that they add a feature, they basically tag it with when it got added. Um, And that means that as you like, uh, as as your subscription runs out, because you can do a non-renewable subscription that you can buy multiple times via in-app purchase. Um, So when that one runs out, uh, what they will do is they will essentially gate all new features, but all your old features are continuously going to be maintained, which is a big difference from Sketch's model where like, hey, new OS, like you've lost uh, access at that point, so you'll need to yeah. update. Um, so I think that is probably the sweetest like point for the consumer, though, like as we discussed, it's not as safe for the company because like a con- the customer may never need those newer features and therefore you spent a whole bunch of time developing them and they're never gonna come out same for affinity like hey everyone might not want v2 right so they spent a ton of time making v2 in advance um using all the profits that they've made to like fund that um and then all of a sudden hey maybe no one wants it so that's like the biggest risk with like doing the the multiple versioned releases yeah um and it's about finding like a sweet point. I don't think subscriptions for most apps is going to make sense, but uh, this limited time thing where you can gently remind uh, people or let them like do an automatic subscription if they want to, um, I think that's probably going to be the sweetest spot um, where you can you can continuously ship new products. Uh, you kind of amortize over a long duration of time, uh, gaining and losing customers. Um, and as long as you can have that steady state that you're looking for, uh, then you can continuously work on your app and make a living off of it. And I think that's kind of the sweet spot, at least for smaller developers, um, mm-hmm. keep wanting to have happy customers, right? Yeah. Did we, did we talk about Filmic Pro on, on the podcast? I know we talked about it like off, but I don't, did we ever talk about it? I don't think we did. No. Okay. So that's like an example of going to the subscription model, going like incredibly horribly wrong. Um, recently, I think it was a couple months ago, um, Filmic Pro got bought out by a company um, and the company decided, hey, we're going to move to uh, the subscription model where Filmic Pro is, uh, if you don't know, it's basically like the video capture app Um for iOS, uh, very manual features. It's got logarithmic capture. It's got a bunch of stuff that, you know, is sort of more of like the professional thing. Like if you want to shoot a feature film or a documentary on an iPhone, you'll probably use Filmic Pro because it has a lot of, you know, manual focus control, manual exposure control, that kind of stuff. Um, it's very powerful. And I think it was $5 at some point, $10 at some point, but it was relatively affordable. And so, um, my assumption is they thought, oh, well, if people are making feature films with these, instead of buying a red camera, they'll buy the app once and then that's it. And, you know, maybe for five iPhones or whatever, and that's $25 made and that's it. That that would be a one-time purchase because they'll have made all those all those installs via one Apple ID, right? So that's, that's where they really got... got uh... Uh, they 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 uh, miscalculated uh, to say the least. Yeah. So what they did was they said, "Oh, we're going to move to a subscription model." I can't remember the price. It was like five dollars, eight dollars, or something like that. But it was per week, uh, and I think that per week subscription really pissed off a bunch of people. Um, and I think it makes sense for some people. Like if you are only on a shoot for a couple weeks, then you only pay for two weeks. But Man, they just marketed it so poorly, and I think they've—I haven't really followed it since the initial backlash. But like that whole sphere of um, mobile filmmakers and mobile videographers on Twitter, where it was just like a dumpster fire on Twitter. Uh, it was kind of fun to watch, but 
because uh, it wasn't happening to my company. But <laughs> um, point is, I think what Affinity has done is like very, it's very tactful in the mm -hmm. way that they've sort of approached, hey, we need more money or we want more money for whatever reason, development costs, whatever. Yeah. Totally cool. Right? Yeah, they I get the that. saturation. Exactly. Uh, but there's also the flip side of that, which is you can do it horribly, terribly wrong, like Filmic, and you basically just, you know, jaded an entire, your, like your entire customer base. And they were like, oh, yeah, let's use, uh, I think it's called like Beast Cam or something. It's only $2. And so, I mean, it was an immediate 180 of like, yeah, we're just going to use something else if, if they go to this model for the vast majority of people, or at least the vocal majority of people. So. You're familiar uh, with slopes, right? Uh, no. So slopes is a skiing and snowboarding app. Um, and basically okay. they recognize the fact that people are only going to go skiing or snowboarding once, maybe twice a year. Um, like, and that's for the average, maybe it's once every few years. Uh, but sure. you still may really like the app and you want the features of it. Uh, so what they do is they have a day pass, a season pass, um, well, and like different, like they they've aligned with the marketing cool. terms that the yeah. ski like industry uses um, and the snow sport industries use uh, to align themselves in a way that's going to work out and get the benefits. Like it might be really expensive paying daily, day after day uh, for for slopes, but then you don't have to do that. You can go for a season pass and save money mm. uh, that way. It's it's entirely you already planned your trip. You know what you're going to be doing. Um, so you can go ahead and, and benefit there. And I think you can unlock it after the fact, like you can record everything and then unlock. So it's, that's really, cool. it's a very, it's a very open like way of doing this. And I imagine the, the poor developer probably only gets like a big payday every, every December or every winter, <laughs> uh, season. And then all of a sudden the rest of the year is like tumbleweeds going through, but that's a big enough, um, like, uh, uh, surge in in um in income that he's able to have it last out the the whole yeah. year so or um or the opposite i guess backfill the year depending on how taxes are being done but um i yeah i i think there are many ways of like marketing things like this like you could have done hey you're doing a one one set like buy buy filming pro by the set um and then like hey you're gonna do a shoot and then you buy it you do your shoot and then in then it deactivates. Um, and then you're about to do another shoot. Then you buy it again. Like at that point, yeah. you're expensing it to whoever's doing the shoot. So you don't really care yeah. um, as much as the individual contractor working on uh, these sorts of things. So that's that's how they probably could have done it in a much more tasteful way that at least recognizes what their market is, right? Mm -hmm. Are you someone who's just doing it on your own and you just want to do like a quick uh, weekend project? Uh, then do it that way. Um, are you someone who uses this professionally? Then do it another way, right? Um, address your audience uh, and think about how you're going to be marketing these things. Yep. Talking about building apps, um, I built an app a really long time ago in 2006. Um, and very recently, I was like, well, I, I may want to consider bringing this app back. Uh, and if you're curious, the app is Sluzzles. Um, and this was like a tile-based puzzle that I... Uh, made uh, relatively quickly just out of uh, out of wanting to make a quick game uh, and having a, a quick idea that could that could make it work um, so this is an objective C project and I was dreading just like relaunching it on modern devices I'm like this is no nothing is gonna work and this is gonna be like weekends of of uh, getting the wrench underneath the app and like really really uh, trying different things until it gets going but to my yeah. surprise, I was able to get it working in like under 20 minutes. Um, so if you have an old app and you are scared of the the necessary wackiness that would be needed to get it kind of working again, um, I have uh, I have some some recent experience in telling you exactly what I went through. So that way, maybe it's less of a burden uh, for you. Um, so the first thing that I, that I noticed is when I launched this thing, like Xcode was not happy. Um, but <laughs> because this was objective C, like I didn't need to go through multiple versions of Xcodes and potentially VMs, uh, to modernize the Swift at every, uh, stage. So I'm very happy. I did not use, uh, Swift for this. I'm not sure if Swift was available in 2006. 
Um, this was before the iOS 7 um, transition oh. as well. Like I, I miraculously landed on a quote unquote flat design before flat uh-huh. design was in. Um, <laughs> so nice. that was that was pure luck on my part. Um, so yeah, the first step is like open an Xcode and just see what it's complaining about. Um, there were some fun things that I found out, uh, like, hey, uh, I was making really bad decisions in terms of using, uh, calling Objective-C message send, uh, like, directly, rather than just using, using Objective-C syntax. Um, and I had a comment saying, like, something really naive, uh, at the time, like, uh, just stop it compiler in in more barbaric language of course huh. uh stop it compiler like i know what i'm doing this warning is useless turns out it was a hard error uh in the future in the distant distant future so i just commented out and it was like i can live without this supposed functionality uh for the time being so commented it out and moved on to the next issue that popped up uh the next issue was i was importing test flight the library uh, and this was because TestFlight was not owned by Apple yet, and it was an actual library that you would uh, that you would like have as a part of your app, uh, right. so that way you can go ahead and like share it with people in a reasonable way without making ad hoc builds all on your own. Um, so that was number two of uh, things to just like delete. I didn't I didn't bother disabling. It was like this can be removed from the project. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, yes, Xcode, please do. Um, and then removing it from the targets, and then anywhere I was importing and using that, I just commented out. Uh, so that was, like, step two. Uh, of course, uh, Xcode still was not happy, um, and Xcode was still not happy because my deployment target was still iOS 6. Uh, and modern Xcode, the minimum deployment target is iOS 11, uh, which oh. I was like, oh, sorry, iOS 6 users, you're out of luck. Uh, so right. I, I bumped that to iOS 11, um and at that point it compiled and it ran and it worked exactly as i left it um that's amazing which was like a testament to objective c more than anything uh because i'm sure with swift that at that point you would have to go in and modernize stuff um and by modernize i mean like use the right api translation uh from ui kit to swift because that naming has changed over the years and it's not hard but it is like uh going here retyping this in a different way um that's how the syntax has changed significantly at least from like swift three and four if you're from swift one and two the the other parts of the language did change significantly so uh that would all have to change as well so um really thankful that that was a more or less easy process of course uh the app still was like in like a window inside the the iphone because uh, it turns out I had images per iOS device that my app was compatible mm. with. Um, and that's the only like devices it would run on. So I selected all, deleted those, uh, went to file, add file, um, and added a launch storyboard, which was like a foreign concept in this app. Um, and I just left it at, at like the default for now. It was mm-hmm. not as pretty as my hand-tailored default images, of course, but um, <laughs> yellow. That's awesome. Um, so oh, then cool. I, I, I build that, uh, and that seems to work like more or less fine. So I have a, a reasonably ancient app that's now working on a new device. Of course, there are lots of things that I would want to tweak uh, for this, but like basically the game the game works entirely. I had fun solving a puzzle for the first time in, I don't know, six years? Uh, that's wait, cool. 2007. No, that's... Uh, no, iOS 7. iOS 7 came out in... 2012 uh, 12 11 so it's like 10 years um yeah if, if it is ios in uh, 2012 i was like ios 7 2007 no it's not not a correlation that exists um but yeah so i i do want to make more improvements to the app before i like release it but uh yeah it was really fun it was really fun modernizing an ancient app that i put together relatively quickly um it's relatively small uh, I would probably want to, as an exercise, go ahead and modernize the Objective-C to Swift at this point, um, because Swift is not changing syntactically anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no no more need for those converters for the most part. Uh, so it's at a stable enough point where I can go ahead and do that. Um, and I'm reasonably sure the compiler will support 
my flavor of Swift for the foreseeable future, um, or at least some open source tool will uh, now that it's really becoming widespread. At least the OS as well, because they're they're hard coded with Swift at this point. Um, so, yeah, that that's that's what the experience is like modernizing an old app. So, if you have an old app and you have been scared of updating that thing, uh, rest assured that. For all intents and purposes, like nothing that I was using in UIKit, uh, nothing that I was using in core animation uh, was really broken. Like, yeah, there are deprecations, but all of those deprecated things still work. Um, mm-hmm. So that that is really, really cool. Like you probably can't see the same thing of like SwiftUI um, at this stage. Like a lot of things are yeah. probably going to break over the next few years, especially over 10 years. Uh, but at the very least for UIKit, that was stable. UI kit's probably not going to last another ten years, um, given the given the current messaging. So now is the time to like uh, fix that up and modernize it. But thankfully, uh, if you have well written code that you can kind of follow, then you can go ahead and update that without, or you can update it piecemeal, right? You don't have to go all in. Um, so first, I'm going to be updating it from Objective C to Swift, and then a second step will be updating it from UI kit to Swift UI. Um, but I can take my time doing that part. Nice. That's cool. Uh, I don't have projects quite as old where they were entirely written in Objective-C and I, I learned Swift first, but I have tried to modernize a couple of my projects. It's been a, a while since I have, but it always has been met with, uh, this doesn't even compile uh, because it is like Swift 2 or Swift 3 and, and the language itself has changed a, a fair amount um, in comparison. Uh, but it is a matter of like using the Xcodes app to download the right version of Xcode that you, it'll tell you like, Oh, download Xcode 11 point, whatever to go from three to four or whatever it is. I can't remember. Uh, so I, I think I had to do that two times, two different versions of Xcode. So it was like, you know, wait a, a couple hours for it to download and unzip and everything. Mm-hmm. But other than that, it is like, it'll ask you to update recommended project settings and everything. But for the most part, it is fairly easy. And I, I didn't ever run in, I mean, my projects weren't complex enough to like run into things where it like couldn't automatically convert things over. So that was nice. And it it maybe wasn't quite as seamless as the experience that you had going from objective C, but if you do have an old project, it's kind of fun to like pull it up again and, and convert it and then see, Oh yeah, this still works for the most part. And definitely uh, it's a time to, uh, gasp in in um, fear of what your old code looked like because you've learned a lot since then, but mm-hmm. it still works, and you can you know, modernize it and make it maybe a little bit more clean. So, exactly, yeah. Like this, this experience was definitely different than past experiences doing it because it was working from an iOS six like era uh, code base. It was not working from an iOS six era code base that had stuff from iOS three. Uh, uh-huh. 3.2 because it was an iOS before that. Um, so like <clears throat> I have other apps that are much older, uh, that would probably not work as seamlessly. Um, and those ones are going to require significantly more work to maintain. And that's the reason why I stopped maintaining them because at, as iOS eight was coming out, I was like, well, uh, iOS eight is breaking a bunch of stuff that I relied on from iOS or iPhone OS two. Um, and that is like code that is significant enough in my project that I'm going to need to rewrite all of it, uh, to use a completely different paradigm, um, that like didn't exist. So although that code has like survived the transition from non-retina to retina to like barely peeking into the iOS seven and iOS eight era, um, it was not something I can, I could actively maintain anymore. I would have to like start fresh. And I just didn't. I, I didn't have the time and I didn't have the motivation to do it. Um, and therefore, that project kind of stopped. Uh, so that's that's always going to be a thing that can't happen. Um, I was just tremendously lucky in this scenario. So um, I didn't think it would be this easy. I was assuming like I would have to rewrite. But I wanted to see like how the app behaved. Because if I'm going to be rewriting it, I want to like match a lot of the behaviors. And yeah, I remembered sure. I had a lot of pleasant animations and sound effects and interactions that um, I made possible that I probably wouldn't be able to do in SwiftUI yet. Like these are things that were like highly tuned 
uh, with deep knowledge of how core animation worked um, that just like worked perfectly. Like multi-finger, multi-touch interactions were just something that uh, were pleasant uh, to play with for this for this little game. Um, and it's not something that I could have completely rewritten. So I was like, or at least I couldn't have completely rewritten from memory alone. Um, so I wanted to see it and I was pleasantly surprised that, Hey, that worked. So I, maybe I don't need to start fresh. I can, I can go from here. Um, I want to start fresh on the UI of it, like the, the, the look and feel of the app itself, because it never worked in landscape. It would have to work on all sorts of different screen sizes now. Um, so yeah. that's still like a lot of work that I would need to do, but the core game that per- that part like still works flawlessly, so I'm really pleased about that. Calling all sports fans. Uh, this week's episode of Code Completion is brought to you by Pennant. Want to keep track of the season, but there's so many teams and not enough time? Check out Pennant. Pennant provides sports standings at a glance. Pennant displays league standings as a simple bar chart where the best teams rise to the top throughout the season. Of course, you can dig in deeper with team stats, game results, and more. Version 10 introduced the all-new customizable My Pennant View, where you can build a wide selection of visualizations for any sport, division, or team. Unlock Pennant Premium to add as many blocks as you'd like and put any of them on your home screen as a widget. Whether you follow MLB, NFL, NBA, NHL, or MLS, Pennant has you covered with more sports and leagues coming every day. Thank you so much to Pennant for sponsoring Code Completion. Download Pennant on the iOS App Store today. So Spencer, I've got a new code completion tip for you, um, and that is a do blocks. So I assume you've used do blocks before for things like error handling. I have, yes. Uh, on occasion. Um, on occasion, I, I dabble <laughs> in thing. in throwable throwable functions. Yes. Um, so did you know that you can use them without a catch uh, block that corresponds to them? I did not. I would so, usually just try optional. Yeah, that, that's that's something that you can do. Uh, but do blocks without the catch, they have nothing to do with air handling uh, at that point. But they do have a lot of uses that can potentially help make your code better. So uh, here's a scenario. You have a function and it does the same thing twice, right? Um, so you declare the variable the first time and you say, let my variable equals this. And then you do the thing. And then you need to do it a second time, but that starting variable needs to be something different. So then you're like, let that same variable equals that. But then the compiler complains because you've declared the same variable twice. Has that happened mm-hmm. to you? I don't think so, but I can see where you're, I can see the problem. Okay. Uh, so you would be forced to either turn that variable into a var, which may mm-hmm. not be what you wanted because it's supposed to be a constant just used right. twice. Um, or you might declare a second variable with a different name. Um, and then like have that confusion going forward. Um, yeah. Or you can wrap each time you're doing something in a do block. So you say do open curlies, do the thing, close the curlies. And any variables defined within that do block oh. are secluded to that do block. So then you can have a second do block that does something else. Um, so that's one one great use of this. And I use this all the times in tests. Uh, unit tests are like the quintessential area where you copy and paste code many different times with slight <laughs> yeah. changes to like see okay if i have this as an input if i have this as an input um and do blocks do that perfectly because you don't have to have many different test cases for like one thing that you're testing um but you can like one use code folding to like hide away the ones that you're not interested in um so that's a great use you can reuse variable names like copy pasting um, and they're like unique per that situation. So that's another uh, great use for that. They share in their parent context. So if you have anything declared outside, you can use it in all those do blocks as well. Um, so all of those are like great uses for that. Um, my favorite use, which is a bit more complex, is that you can name do blocks. So you can go ahead and use that special syntax uh, for loops uh, where right. you say like my block colon and then do open curly, close curly. Um, and this means that you can break out of a do block early. Um, you can go ahead and break out of there without returning necessarily out of the function, um, but you can still like stop execution within that block itself. Um, so that's really useful when you are like nesting these with loops and stuff like that. You have a complex sure. argument um, algorithm that you're working with, um, or you just want a basic way of keeping the code a little bit cleaner. Um, you can go ahead and do that. So. 
dew blocks. They're very versatile. Um, and even though like most people only use them for dew catch, uh, they can be used on their own. Um, and I think that's like where the dew while uh, comes from is it uses a dew block and just add a while on top of that. So um, that's that's where I initially got uh, inspired to try doing silly things with them. And I found out you can do all sorts of fun things with them. So A plus. That's cool. Uh, that's always a reminder to me. I should like go back and reread the uh, or not reread, but just like for something like that, just reference the Swift programming language guide because there's so much about the language that like super easy to forget or mm-hmm. there's just a lot. And so I didn't know that, but I'm sure it's in the Swift programming language guide. Um, everything that you just said, and I could have known that, but I didn't. So <laughs> it's, it's such a good reference for like anyone that's learning, but I, I will still reference it on occasion, uh, especially for like, um, there's a good diagram of like how designated and convenience initializers will interact depending on kind of the way that you set them up. So it's a good reference. Um, interesting. Um, I, and also I completely forgot that you can name loops and everything like that too. So that was another good reminder that you just slipped in there. Um, Yep. Very nice. Um, I like it. And, and I'm glad you call that out because it's, it's oftentimes hard to like remember all these things. Uh, and even if you remember just a snippet of it, then you have to go and look it up uh, and mm-hmm. like find that detail. So uh, if, if you have read over the Swift Language Guide uh, recently and you did find a lot of things that you liked but then potentially forgot about later or needed to re-reference time and time and time again before you actually memorized it, <clears throat> block syntax um so uh that that is something that you might want to uh keep an eye out because i have been working on a secret project um oh. and that secret project is not ready for anything like any kind of announcement yet uh but it is along those line uh those lines so um i i hope to get it pretty in pretty good shape soon enough so that way at, le- at the very least we can do something along the lines of test flight or something like that um but yeah uh that this should be a, a a fun a fun tool that can help a lot of people um remember these sorts of things nice so stay tuned stay tuned indeed as always, I want to personally thank everyone for listening in this week. Please be sure to follow us on Twitter at CodeCompletion to know when new episodes go live, and feel free to tweet at us if there's ever a topic you'd like for us to dig into. Most importantly, as a small podcast, please be sure to share this with your friends and family who are also interested in any part of the process of app development. It's your support that enables us to continue doing this, and we hope to grow a healthy community around everything we discuss. Once again, I want to give my thanks to Spencer. Who is that? Spencer C. Curtis. That's S P E N C R C C U R T I S on Twitter for joining me this week. My name once again is Dimitri. You can find me at Dimitri Buniol. That's D I M I T R I B O U N I O L. And we'll see you all next week. Bye. Bye, everyone. So um, I did uh, I did learn some things uh, since last week regarding my networking setup, uh, and that's okay. always that's always fun uh, to share. Uh, one, I got most of my HomeKit like uh, devices happy in a happy place. I guess they just needed a few days to kind of settle into their new networking environment. Um, <laughs> half of this was like steering them to the right access points. Uh, half of this was just like uh, reconnect, 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 reconnect. Hey, there's a transfer rate that seems reasonable. Um, and that oh, kind of brought all my switches back online. Um like the the Decora Leviton uh, switches, I don't know if you use those, um, but there's no information in either their app or the HomeKit app as far as which device they are in terms of like MAC address. Oh. So I had like a very pain. Well, I I was blessed with a house that none of the switches were connected, so I was just like, okay, I'm gonna restart this one and then like, go to the home app and see which one comes back online. Um, and that's how I would identify which switch was which. Um, so I did that for a good hour, uh, named all the switches. And now anytime I get like a power blip and then like one is like misconnected and like connected only halfway, I don't know. It's like connected, but it's not pingable. Um, it's a really weird, uh, kind of state that they get in. Uh, but all I need to do is click reconnect, reconnect, 
reconnect until the transmit rate goes above six megabits per second. And then all of a sudden it's like there in HomeKit and it's happy, which means I don't have to get up and go to the switch anymore. And I am yeah. very happy about that. Yeah. Um, so, so a plus for that experience. Um, I can just sit my lazy butt down and <laughs> reconnect. That's what's, that's what smart switches are for, man. Yeah. So now I have smart, a smart switch for the smart switch. Uh, if we think <laughs> yes. of it that way, um, though I'm I'm like amazed that works. Like just telling the access point to boot the client is enough to get the client to actually reconnect. I was expecting the client would be like YOLO. Uh, I guess I'm yeah. not connecting to anything right now, and then it's like I'm sure some would power cycle it. Yeah, I'm sure some devices would just be like, all right, whatever, it's cool. We're not gonna reconnect. Yeah. Uh, talking about those devices, the Circle View cameras, which were like super sturdy on my airport uh, Wi-Fi's, are like a hot mess on Unify access points. Um, so nice. I like really mucked around with the exact settings. I have no idea what I landed on. I think I set all the transmit powers to low, um, and they seem somewhat happier. Uh, but they're like some of them are still like constantly going offline, online, offline, online, offline online throughout the day and that's like driving me nuts so i don't know if that's also related to like power struggles that the neighborhood has been having ever since the Mm -hmm. recent rainstorms so who knows what's going on uh i wish i had a whole house backup battery uh which i do not have um because the switches rely on wall power uh and i can't plug them into like apc backup batteries that all my regular computers are connected into um so that's that uh, another thing, uh, turns out HomePods, uh, and stuff like most HomeKit devices, actually, um, you know, when they mention there's a home, a HomeKit hub, uh, yes. and those, like those devices are special. Turns out a HomeKit hub is basically a network switch. Um, and all the devices, they can connect directly to those devices, um, like via Bluetooth or Wi-Fi, and advertise them as living like via that connection, that hardwired connection that they have. So uh, some of my HomePods, they came up under one uh, MAC address uh, via Wi-Fi. Uh, mm-hmm. And then when I was switching over the Wi-Fi, uh, my Apple TV was still plugged in uh, and they hopped onto the Apple TV and they were all plugged into that port on the switch. And I was like, huh, how am I That's getting weird. like four things plugged into the same port on this uh, on this switch? Uh, and it turns out the Apple TV was acting as a a network switch, but for these wireless devices. So when you set up, I, I later learned uh, that when you set up uh, the home stereo through the HomePods for the Apple TV, those HomePods are no longer connected to your Wi-Fi. They're connected to the Apple TV directly mm-hmm. during an ad hoc link. Um, and that gives them better latency, I guess. Because then they show up on your network topology as connected to the same port as that Apple TV is. Um, as if it were a dumb, unmanaged switch. Um, but they, of course, have different MAC addresses. So I had to hunt down like those separate yeah. uh, MAC addresses uh, using the excellent Discoveries, um, Discovery app, uh, which is like a Bluetooth... Uh, not a Bluetooth. Uh, bonjour. Um, oh. Like advertisement Discovery application and just kind of gives you everything um and mm-hmm. if you go under the hap uh like identifier that's all your home kit accessories um so you can kind of go through one by one and find out mac addresses find out ip addresses and like that does not sound fun figure it out the home app if you tap on home pods do give you the mac address like as you t- cycle through um or it might be a page address one of them it gives you some useful information so yeah. you can like figure out what these devices are uh and then name them on your network and then realize that they'll reconnect under Wi-Fi uh, and no longer be wired and have a different act, like MAC address. Anyways, uh, I got that all sorted, so uh, that is good. The only thing that I can't get connected that are technically connected to my network, uh, except one of them because I really messed it up, are my switch bots. So these were these little tiny devices that you can connect to uh, wall power and you can control via HomeKit to turn them on and off. Um, and one of them is connected to my Wi-Fi network because I can address it via IP address, like, and it loads in a browser and it says like uh, endpoint not found or whatever. But it like it's addressable. It's there, yeah. Uh, but it's not showing up in HomeKit at all. Uh, the other one, I was like, okay, let me try 
turning it like resetting it to factory and then re bringing it on um and i cannot add it to HomeKit, and it because i cannot complete that process it's not adding it to my wi-fi either uh so that one's right. just like permanently offline now so i still like have some tweaking to really like understand what's going on there um and that's unfortunate um but yeah finally got the whole thing set up uh garage included uh finally started like bolting these uh saucers to the ceiling um i did drop one in the process uh they are sturdy (laughs) there's nothing shaking on the inside uh, i can tell you that much um as i like was holding (laughs) it to try to measure and it slipped out and then the ethernet disconnected it was chaos um yeah but yeah uh so like got it got it mounted in like two rooms still got four to go um and yeah overall like really happy with the network performance in general as we mentioned last time the wi-fi man thing sucks uh but you can download an iperf3 app on your yeah like phone uh and i now have enough hooked up where i can run iperf3 on a 10 gigabit um like mac uh connected mac and that like actually goes through all the way and i was getting over gigabit speed so i'm really happy with all of that now i just need like better internet better internet yeah. please come that's any day now well you are <laughs> trying to will it into existence pretty hard with the kind of preparation for it so hopefully it does manifest itself yeah for aforementioned app uh idea i may need a server component which i may want to be extra lazy about and host at home so uh-huh. please static ip that would be very useful it, it's it would thankfully be a low uh, low volume endpoint that I can actually like host out of my house um, without like killing my own home internet. Uh, <laughs> but I would obviously not recommend this to anyone uh, because if you've ever done anything hosted out of your home before, like anything can go down and then you're on the hook to fix it if you want it to be fixed. Uh, so yeah. like it's sometimes worth it just to pay someone else to deal with the network and yeah. the, the devices staying online and all that. And all you have to worry about is like keeping your app running on that machine. And for the most part, throwing something on a server is probably pretty cheap. I don't know what you want to do, but like hosting something on like Heroku is like free or like the lowest tier for like, so it doesn't go to sleep is like $7 a month or something. It's, but why spend seven dollars a month when you can spend thousands on network? Anyways, um, hey, that's such a developer mindset. <laughs> I feel you, man. Take care, everyone. See ya. Bye.